0: You cool. cool. you to take a Bible and open it to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 this morning Luke chapter 7 as we continue our study in this gospel we've been looking at the life of Jesus and of course Luke has really been using the first nine chapters in telling the story of Jesus the first nine chapters is almost an introduction to Jesus if you will He's introducing us to Jesus. He's focusing on fleshing out who this person is, the subject of his book, the main character of this book. And as we read through this gospel, or really any of the gospels, it doesn't take long for us to realize that Jesus is someone special. Jesus stands out. He is unique. He is even extraordinary. He is a man, but he's unlike any other man who lived at least at that time, and we know from a more historical perspective of any time that has ever been. In the first two chapters, Luke establishes Jesus' earthly origins and reveals his divine character. But as Jesus embarks on his divine mission, beginning in chapter 3, Luke reveals more and more of, of Jesus' supernatural character. We've seen that both through Jesus' teaching and through his miraculous works. Well, Luke is going to continue to amplify the character of Jesus, going to continue to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And he's going to use in chapter seven, at least the first part of chapter seven, he's going to record for us two more miracles that reveal more about Jesus. They're going to reveal, as the other stories have, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But these stories also reveal more about his mission as well, that he came as the Messiah, not just to set up a kingdom, but to redeem a people to live in that kingdom. He has come to redeem God's people from their sins. He's come to rescue them from death. He's come to restore them to a new relationship, a renewed relationship with God that is manifest in the eternal life that he is giving to them. So the two miracles that we're going to study today our center around Jesus' authority. We mentioned earlier as it was going through the, the openings. We've sung songs this morning about the authority of Jesus. The two and I guess all miracle stories are to some degree about the authority of Jesus, but these two seem to highlight that authority in a pronounced way. They really stand as the central theme to both of these narratives. Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah and the Redeemer by His authority. And his authority proves that he is the Messiah and Redeemer that God has sent. And it also foreshadows the fulfillment of his ministry. The things that happen here are foreshadowing what Jesus will continue to do through his earthly ministry, but ultimately what will happen in his death and resurrection and the ministry of Christ beyond even that through the, through the church today, as we see in the book of Acts. So let's look at these two passages and see how we might better understand Jesus. We're going to start in chapter 7 with verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So we see here two episodes, two stories, two narratives. I want to look at each of those in turn. The first being the healing of the centurion's servant. The second being the raising of the widow of Nain's son. So first, the healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, this story follows on the heels of the Sermon on the Plain. We see that Jesus, we don't know where the plane was where Jesus was giving the teaching but when he was done he moved back to Capernaum which was kind of his home base it was a, a an important fishing village on the coast of the of the Sea of Galilee probably a, a population of about 1500 and in that town lived a centurion a Roman soldier as the name suggests with command over a hundred men well the centurion had a servant who was sick and near the point of death and since the centurion valued his servant he summoned Jesus to come and heal him. Now, we don't know if, how the centurion knew about Jesus, but we know that Luke has said throughout this process that the word was spreading about Jesus. And certainly if Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum doing these miracles and healing works, that the, Caperna- that the, 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 the centurion would have no doubt heard those reports. In fact, he may have even witnessed those reports or witnessed those, those, uh, those miracles himself. And so as he's thinking about his own situation, knowing what Jesus can do, he summons Jesus to come and do for his servant what he has done for so many others. But what's unusual about how the centurion summons Jesus is that he doesn't plead with Jesus directly. The centurion does not go to Jesus directly and appeal to him to come to his house and heal his servant. Instead, he sends a delegation of the elders of the Jews, these local Jewish officials who are important in, 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 in setting out the, the rules of the city and adjudicating uh, cases, uh, laws in the town. He sends them on, uh, on, be, on his behalf and asks them to appeal to Jesus to come back and to heal his servant. What's interesting to me is the relationship between the centurion and these elders of the Jews. Do you know the centurion here is an, a, a Roman official? He is an officer in the Roman army he would have probably, most likely, was a Gentile. And we know that the Jews loathed the Romans. They were Gentiles for sure, but they viewed the Romans as as despots, as usurpers, as occupiers of a land that was not their own. And so there's this great animosity that exists, a great hatred that exists between the Jews and the Romans. And so that would have played out, we would expect between the centurion and the Jewish elders. But this case is different. The Jewish officials hold the centurion in high regard. They affectionately advocate for him, as we see in verses 4 and 5, that when they came to Jesus, they pleaded. It's an emotional term. It's a strong term begging Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who has built us our synagogue. So they, they hold him in high regard. They, they, they dearly love him. They, 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 he has endeared himself to them. The Jewish people are, 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 are happy to support this centurion. This centurion, unlike most centurions, unlike most Roman officials, loves the Jewish people. In verse 4 he says that he loves our nation. He loves our people. And that love is evident in the fact that that this man the centurion built a synagogue for them and not only did he build it he actually financed it the reason it gets built is because he has given generously can you imagine if someone had just dropped down money for us to build a church wouldn't that be something i don't know what our property is worth but can you imagine someone dropping down say a couple of million dollars and saying i want to build a church for those people that's incredible the centurion is giving of himself. He's giving of, of his means because he loves this people and he's doing something for them. And so by endearing himself to the people and by building them this synagogue, he would struck a measure of goodwill among the people. that He really curried their favor. It doesn't seem like there's any false motive there. It seems like it's a very genuine motive. In fact, the Jewish leaders will even say in verse 4 that he is worthy of... The centurion is worthy for Jesus to come and to do something for him, to receive such help from Jesus. I think, though, that based on what we understand about in the New Testament and also in extra-biblical sources, that this man was more than just simply doing something out of respect or altruism even for the Jewish people. His esteem for the Jews and for Judaism as a religion may reflect the fact that he was a God-fearer. and That seems to be a, a technical term in this time usually refers to someone who is a Gentile who understands that Yahweh is the one true God and that Judaism is the religion that, that specifies the right means of, of his worship. He's not necessarily a, a proselyte. He might be in the process of making a, an official conversion. We, we don't know where he is in regard to that, but at least his heart is tender toward the Lord. His heart is inclined to believe that the Jewish God, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And that the worship of this one true God is the one true and right way of worship. And so he had even forsaken the Roman gods and forsaken Roman worship, but he at least acknowledges God. And so he is someone as a God-fearer who has the fear of the Lord. He seeks to honor God. He seeks to to want to to do what is right by God. And that means loving God's people and doing what he can to promote his worship. He seems to have a heart that is inclined to, toward the Lord, and so he may have been a God-fearer, motivating him out of the fear of the Lord to do these things for the Jewish people. Either way, whatever this is, the elders of the Jews present the centurion's request to Jesus. They make their case that Jesus intervenes. And although the text does not say it explicitly here, I think we can assume by Jesus' response that he, he does concede to go out of an abundance of compassion and mercy. We talked about this on Wednesday night, that God is the God of mercy. He is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son for us. This is just who Jesus is. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is merciful. And so when he receives this request from the elders of the Jews, he goes. He goes. He follows them to the centurion's home. Well, as they are en route to the the centurion's home, in verse six, there's another delegation that stops Jesus and the Jewish elders. And these are some friends of the centurion. Verse 6 that the centurion says the centurion sent some friends. And these friends now relay a second message. So it's kind of interesting here that the centurion is kind of keeping his distance from Jesus. First sending the Jewish elders, now sending a contingent of friends. And these friends relay a message from the centurion. There is no need for Jesus to actually come to the house. That doesn't mean the centurion has changed his mind about seeking healing for his servant. It doesn't mean the situation about the, about the servant's need has changed. He still has a need. But through these emissaries, he gives the reason why Jesus no longer needs to actually Come. First, in verse 6, he acknowledges, the centurion acknowledges that Jesus is, that, that he is unworthy for Jesus to come under his roof. He says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And again, even if his understanding about Jesus is not total, the centurion has enough awareness to know that Jesus is greater, Jesus is preeminent, Jesus is superior. And al- although these Jewish officials uphold the centurion, they call him worthy. You see that back in verse 4? he is pleading with Jesus. He is worthy to have you come and do this for him. The centurion says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. He is not worthy to receive Jesus' favor. He is unworthy for Jesus to come into his home. Jesus is the one who is worthy. He is Is unworthy. The centurion displays here humility. And it really is the kind of humility that all men ought to show Jesus that we are all unworthy, like the centurion. And even when we consider this man's status and this man's means, I mean, he's a centurion after all. Even when he considers what he is, he realizes he is humble enough to recognize, I'm not worthy. Jesus is greater. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is superior. And so the centurion says on that basis, because I am not worthy, because you are greater, because you are worthy, you ought not to come into my house. Second, we see the centurion acknowledges Jesus' total authority in verses 7 and 8. So not only is he unworthy, he acknowledges Jesus' authority, and that authority is total The servant is still sick and near death. The centurion still values his servant. The the centurion still trusts that Jesus can heal, but all he requires of Jesus is the word. He just simply requires the healing word, the powerful word, the authoritative word of Jesus. Look again at verses 7 and 8. It says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed he connects those two things together and then he gives an example verse 8 for i too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me and i say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it so even though he still has a need he understands that all jesus needs to do is say a word The word of Jesus has healing power no matter where it is spoken. It can be spoken at the bedside in his home or it can be spoken down the street still far away from his house. As long as Jesus speaks, the word has authority to heal. He even makes a a comparison here to his own authority. We call this uh, an an argument from lesser to greater. The centurion gives an example of his own authority. He says, look, I, I have people under me. I have soldiers, I tell one, go, and he goes. Well, why does, that, why does that soldier go? Because the centurion is a man of authority. The soldier acknowledges that authority, and he does whatever the soldier tells him to do. He tells another soldier, come, and the soldier comes. Why? Because the centurion is a man of authority, and that soldier recognizes that authority and responds to that authority. The centurion also has servants in his home, and, and because of the, the authority structure of the home... The centurion can say to the servant, do this, and the the servant will do it because he recognizes the centurion's authority is a greater authority, and therefore he submits to it. So if the civil authority and the domestic authority of the centurion works on a small scale, how much more confident is he that Jesus, who possesses greater authority, can do greater things by his word? Jesus is greater. Jesus is Lord. He even acknowledged him as Lord earlier in, the, in verse 6. Jesus is Lord. His word has authority. Jesus has already proven that he is one who has come from God. He has proven to have supernatural authority over diseases and disabilities and demons. The centurion acknowledges the power of Jesus' word to heal. So he doesn't need Jesus to come by his bedside and to give a touch. He doesn't need Jesus to utter some incantation. He doesn't need Jesus to manipulate magical arts. He doesn't need Jesus to use some sort of remedy, acknowledge remedy or home remedy, to try to, to work healing in Jesus. He just needs Jesus to speak. The word of Jesus is sufficient to heal. And so it is ultimately immaterial where Jesus is. If he's in the house, or down the street, or across town, or halfway around the globe... As Jesus speaks the word, the servant will be healed because the spiritual forces subject to Jesus' authority must obey his word. And so Jesus, as he hears the plea of the centurion in verse 9, he marvels at the centurion. And he commends him for his faith. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. That word is usually applied to Jesus. In other words, other people marvel at Jesus. Jesus. They see what Jesus does and they marvel. They are surprised. They are astonished. They are in awe or wonder at what Jesus is doing. They hear Jesus teach and they marvel because of the things that they are hearing. But now Jesus marvels as he reacts to this centurion's faith. And he commends the centurion for his faith. It is a faith, he says, that is lacking among God's people. And again, Jesus' commendation here is somewhat surprising because this centurion is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's an outsider. We don't know what he knows about the Jewish scriptures or the Jewish God or the Jewish faith. He knows enough to fear God, more than likely. But yet he is someone who's on the outside. He's not one of the, uh, of the promised people. He's not one of the nation of Israel, the, the people who had received God's covenant Jesus here recognizes this centurion's faith as exemplary. The centurion recognizes the grace of God in Jesus. So he submits to Jesus and to his authority. And so he yields himself in complete trust as he seeks Jesus' help. And then in resting upon the word that will heal the servant. By this implication, Jesus criticizes Israel. Again, they were God's special people. It's sort of a mild rebuke of the the Jews and even of the Jewish leaders that were there. Again, they were God's special people. God had chosen them. God had called them. God had made a covenant with them. He had given them his word through the scriptures to live by. He had sent them prophets to exhort them to faithfulness. He had made promises about their rescue and redemption through those very prophets. And yet many failed to recognize Jesus as the Lord and Messiah. They failed to recognize that, their, that he was God's son, that he was the one promised by God to bring about their redemption. And so they do not submit themselves to him with this kind of faith. And part of what Luke is telling us here is part of what he is encouraging from the church and what he is encouraging any outsiders who are reading this, any, any non-Christians reading this, is to have faith like the centurion. And so Jesus marveling at that faith does exactly what the centurion has asked. Although it's not noted here, he must have spoken the word because in verse 10, when the friends returned home, they found the servant Well, we see, the, once again, the authority of Jesus' word, this, the wholeness and the health and the wellness of the servant is proof positive that Jesus' word possesses authority. It actually happened, as Jesus said, that it would. Now, in the healing of this servant, we see a microcosm of the gospel itself. As we've seen oftentimes in these stories, these narratives, these healing stories, these miracle stories we believe that they actually happened they were historical occurrences these are real people with real conditions jesus was a real man the son of god incarnate who came and who did these very things he healed people with sicknesses he healed this very servant of this illness but yet these stories oftentimes are living parables they are they're representations of of a larger purpose of the larger purpose of jesus the larger mission of jesus The servant's healing reflects the restoration that we experience through the gospel. This servant was sick physically, and by Jesus' healing power became well physically. And that illustrates what Jesus came to do, not just to simply heal physically sick people, but to heal spiritually sick people. We are all spiritually sick we are all spiritually in rebellion against god ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 and paul declares you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body and our mind And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. So all people, every human being born, with the exception of Christ, is sick. Spiritually sick. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's justice, God's punishment for our sins. But if we continue reading Ephesians 2, we see the great redemptive ministry of Jesus. Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Just as Jesus raised up this sick servant to fully restored health and wellness. So Jesus raises us up to spiritual health and spiritual wholeness. We are raised from spiritual death to eternal life with God, fully present with Him and reigning with Him as heirs with Christ. He has accomplished this, restor- this transformation for us through the cross where He paid the penalty for our sins and in His resurrection from the dead where He conquered the power of sin and death forever. We are well, and we are whole, and we have life because of the redemptive ministry of Jesus. And how have we come? Why have, why, how have we come to this work? How do we receive what Jesus has done? Well, it's through the authoritative word of the gospel. James one eighteen says, "Of His own will, speaking of God, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures." And just as the the centurion's servant was healed through the authoritative word of Jesus, so we are also saved by the word of truth, by the word of the gospel that brings about the new birth in our lives. Jesus ordained the preaching of the gospel as the means by which sinful people would encounter his transformation and spiritual healing. And that's why we must elevate the gospel above all else. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Do you see how that includes the centurion? It was to the Jew first, but the centurion is not excluded, he's included. But it is the gospel, it is the authoritative word of the gospel that brings us into the, the transforming power of the cross. We respond then to this word of the truth, to the word of the gospel, by faith just as this centurion did. The gospel represents who Jesus is and what he has done and why he must be believed. And the proper response to Jesus, as we saw last week, the proper response to his work in the gospel is faith. A faith much like the centurion's here. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's the gospel that calls us to an abiding faith in Jesus. a faith that remains with him. A faith that is lived out each and every day as we walk with him. And so if you're a Christian, this narrative is a parable of our own life, of our own lives. It's an illustration that tells our own story. Jesus has saved us by the supernatural authority of his word. We are grateful for the mercy and the grace that he has shown us, and we show our response to that mercy and grace by simply responding in faith to what he has done. And it's faith in Jesus. Faith that connects us to Jesus then that brings spiritual wholeness to us. That's the story of the centurion's servant, the healing of the centurion's servant. Let's look at the second story in 11, verses 11 through 17. The resuscitation of the widow's son. Which again parallels in many ways, which is why I wanted to put these two together uh, to the previous incident there. Luke Notes in verse 11. Soon afterward, again, we don't know the length of time here, but at some point after, Jesus traveled to a town called Nain. And Nain is in Gal- situated in Galilee. It's probably about 20 miles to the southwest of Capernaum as the crow flies. I kind of have to go around the lake a little bit, so it take a little longer to travel. But about 20 miles to the southwest of Capernaum, and about six miles to the southeast. Of Nazareth. So it's in that general vicinity where Jesus was accustomed to, to ministering, preaching, teaching, doing miracles, those kind of things. And we see that Jesus is accompanied by his disciples and a great crowd that continues to kind of gather around him. We don't know Jesus' motivation, at least it does not. Luke does not say the, the outward motivation as to why Jesus went to Nain. We know that it seems to be in God's sovereignty that he was there for this purpose. But he, he goes down to Nain with his disciples and with this great crowd. And as he approaches the city gate, as he's about ready to enter in, he's at the city gates. As he's approaching, there is on the way out of town a funeral procession. A man had died, and as was the custom, his corpse was placed on a bier. Think of it almost like as a, uh, as a piece of plywood, not so much the, the long, but just maybe a, a strip of a piece of plywood. And, and you put on it the, the corpse, and then you wrap it in a shroud. And they were going to carry, they were in the process of carrying the body to the outside, outside the city gates to either a family cemetery or to a local burial ground. The man had just died and according to Jewish culture custom, they would have buried him on the same day that he died. So as this, this procession is, is going out of town, it's not just simply the woman and the, the pallbearers, if you will, but the, the rest of the townspeople, a good number of the townspeople, have joined the widow in her grief. This is the way of, of showing support. Oftentimes when you, when you go to a funeral, right, you see the support of family and friends. We've had several in our church where the church is packed out. People are here to support those who are grieving. And so the townspeople, especially because this woman seems to have no family left, the townspeople have come out of sheer empathy for her to come and to grieve with her. But we don't want to overlook the fact that the man is dead. He's not just severely ill. He's not simply comatose, but he is, he is dead. In fact, one of the things that happens in Jewish cultures when a person dies is that they even leave the body on the sickbed for a while to ensure that the deceased is actually dead. That he's not just simply in a deep sleep or in a coma of some sort. They want to make sure that death is absolutely certain. And so this man is, is dead. His only remaining family was his widowed mother. And we can see and, and feel the weight of her grief. The fact that she's already widowed. She has no husband to support her. And the fact that this is her only son. In fact, that, use the uses the word, uh, the, the, uh, verse uh 12 only son in the greek is the same word applied to jesus in john three sixteen only begotten son this is her only child this is her only son and in this day and time uh, once a woman's husband died then she was dependent upon her her male children to support her there was no social security there was no cultural safety net it was your family so if i, if I were to die chrissa in this time would be dependent upon particularly elijah and luke to care for her and make sure that her needs were all met. So this woman has no support system. She has no family, no, no emotional support network, no financial support network or safety structure. She is on her own and we can, uh, we can understand and feel the weight of her deep grief. And it's part of the reason why I think Luke mentions that there is a considerable crowd because she's got nobody else and who's she going to lean on for any kind of support? They've come out very empathetically to support her, to mourn with her and to attempt to comfort her. When Jesus sees the widow in her grief, he invites himself into her situation, and he brings his redemptive mission to bear in her life and in her son's life. Notice here that Jesus takes the initiative in this scene. I was going to do this, but if you go back through every miracle that Jesus has done in the Gospel of Luke, usually someone is asking Jesus for help or he is provoked in some way nearly like the the leper for instance is coming to jesus and asking for jesus to heal him or the friends who raise the paralytic through the roof there are people who are bringing other people to jesus or in the case of the demon the demon kind of stirs up the person he's possessing and calls out almost provokes jesus to do something none of that happens here and jesus is the one taking initiative He's the one entering into this situation. He's entering into this woman's brokenness. And Luke gives us the reason why he's intervening in verse 13. It says he had compassion on her. Again, we mentioned earlier that Jesus, that one of the central attributes of Jesus, one of the central attributes of the Godhead is compassion. We noted that in the last several weeks. I'm not going to go through that again. But I will say this, Matthew nine thirty six tells us that when Jesus looked out over the 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 vast expanse of people who had come to him for help he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and that word compassion as I think I've told you before means it's the word for gut it's the word for intestines the bowels that's where we kind of feel our emotions have you ever been worried are nervous about something where do you feel it usually feel it in your gut and sometimes there's there's biological effects of that that Jesus was moved the the intestines the gut is the sort of the emotional center Jesus is moved in the very center of his emotional core to act and to do something for this woman he sees her in her immediate grief he sees her catastrophic future without any kind of financial support or support system but even more than that, I believe Jesus saw this the spiritual need of this woman. He saw this woman as a sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus inserts himself into her life and shows her compassion because he is compassionate. That's just what he does. His messianic ministry is rooted in compassion. How does he show her compassion? Verse 13, he first tells her, Do not weep. That's oftentimes a hard thing to do, right? Somebody's nervous or worried, don't worry. It's kind of hard not to worry kind of hard not to weep but yet he commands her not to weep because he's going to change her future that phrase do not weep in the Greek is an imperative it's a command it's an exhortation it's not offered harshly but lovingly he's going to change her life he's going to change her circumstances so there's no longer a need to weep Second, Jesus shows his compassion by bringing this young man, this son, back to life. Notice in verse 14 that he halts the pallbearers, and he does so by touching the buyer, which in Jewish culture, Jewish custom, would have been considered unclean. A dead body is unclean, and so by Jesus touching the buyer would have been in Jewish culture a no-no. An average Jew touching the buyer would have rendered himself unclean because the corpse is unclean but as we've saw in the case of the leper back in chapter 5 it's not that Jesus is made unclean by the unclean leper he actually made the leper clean because he himself is clean he is cleanness incarnate and so when Jesus touches the buyer he is not rendered unclean actually he's going to do just the opposite he's going to render the corpse clean by bringing him back to life So Jesus halts the buyer, he intervenes, stops the procession, and then he calls the boy back. Young man, I say to you, arise. And immediately, as soon as the young man hears these words, as if on cue, the young man comes back to life, he sits up, and he begins to speak. Now, how did he come back to life? Power of Jesus' word. I think again it's clear that when Jesus touched something he touched the buyer and not so much the man. They don't want to press that detail too much. But the point here, the emphasis here seems to be the fact that Jesus spoke with authority that when the man heard this exhortation he obeyed it. He was raised back to life. Now in the Old Testament there are two Instances where the prophets Elijah and Elisha resuscitate a young man back to life. There's two incidences. The first is Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. And in that case, Elijah takes the dead boy, he lays him on his bed, he lays on the boy, over the boy, three times, and he cries out to the Lord as if in desperate prayer. And it's only then when he does those things that the boy returns to life. In the second instance, the case of Elisha raising up a boy in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 to 37, Elisha, too, stretched himself out on the deceased boy, parallel to his own body. So it's like the eyes over the eyes and the arms over the arms and the nose over the nose. So he's stretched, he's, he's prostrate on the dead boy. He does that twice and then, after the second time, the boy gradually comes to life. First it says that he regains his warmth, and then he sneezes seven times, and then finally the boy opens his eyes. I say those two things because when Jesus resuscitates this, this son, this young man, there's no elaborate procedure. There's no gradual resuscitation. Jesus speaks the word of supernatural authority, and the young man immediately returns to life. And we know that he's alive by two sure signs of life. The boy sits up, there's movement, and he begins to speak. There's speech. Again, we see the authoritative word of Jesus. His word carries supernatural authority, and now, this may be, the, if I can categorize it this way, the best of the miracles... Because Jesus has now raised a person from the dead. That's impossible. There are other accounts of healings of different people in different places. But there's no account of someone being able to raise the dead. But Jesus' word is so great. It's so powerful. It's so authoritative. That even the dead come back to life. Now again, as we said earlier in the case of the previous story with the centurion servant. That this has a parabolic aspect to it yes this happened this occurred we believe these are real people with real conditions jesus really did raise this boy from the dead but it is illustrative it depicts outwardly in illustration what jesus came to do for his mission for his purpose first we can say that jesus gives life to the dead this young man was literally dead and jesus brought him back to life and that's what the prophets prophesied that the Messiah would do. We'll look at that more next week. The Messiah would raise the dead. And we see that Jesus does this on at least three different occasions once here, once in Luke chapter 8 with Jairus' daughter, and then again in John 11, Lazarus, probably the most significant, the most well known. But Jesus came to raise more people than these three back to life. Jesus came to give life to the spiritually dead. We've said that we are all spiritually dead because of our sinfulness. And so to break the power of sin and death in our lives, Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to bear the wrath of God that we should receive. And having died then, God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and death forever, and uniting us to himself. Remember that Jesus is the life. We can have no life apart from Jesus. Life is not a quality. It is a person. And the only way that we have life is if we are connected to the one who is life. The one who characterizes life. The one who gives us life. And so by uniting us to himself, we have life in Jesus. And we will live eternally with Jesus because Jesus is the life. And so we're saved from death and we're saved from hell. And we receive eternal life. So that even if and when we die in this world, we will not be dead forever. The hope of our eternal life rests in the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe that even though you die in this world, that one day you'll be raised to eternal life? That is the hope of the Christian. That was the, the preaching of the, of the gospel by the, by the apostles in the book of Acts. It's that Christ was raised. And because he was raised, you also will be raised. That's why I've tried to consistently use the word resuscitation with regard to this miracle as opposed to resurrection. Because this young man was not a true resurrection. He was a resuscitation. Not that again, he, needed C- he was still somewhat alive and needed CPR to bring him fully back. He was dead. But when, he, when Jesus brought him back alive, this man died once again. He's not out here somewhere living around 2,000 years later. He died again. And so in that sense, it's not a true resurrection. But our hope is that even though we die, unless again the Lord returns before we die, we will live forever with Christ. Because at his second coming, he will raise us from the dead. And all will be raised, righteous and unrighteous. But those of us who are in Christ, will be raised to life with him forever. That is our hope, that we will live with Christ forever in a resurrection like his own. The reason that we have hope in this resurrection is because Christ himself was raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits and the promise that we too, though we die, will be raised back to life. And the miracle then, if it points to our own resurrection, to our own life, then it certainly points also to Jesus' own resurrection, which we know with the cross are the preeminent events in Jesus' messianic ministry. The young man's resurrection foreshadows Christ's own resurrection from the dead. Jesus, too, will die. But he will be raised from death, never to die anymore. And he will live forever and he will reign over his kingdom forever. And we know that that is true because Jesus did indeed was raised from the dead. The resurrection is the preeminent proof of the victory of Jesus. As Messiah and Lord Jesus came to save sinners. He came to redeem his people. He came to give us new life. He came to rescue us from death and he accomplishes all of that through his own death and resurrection. He pays the penalty for our sins. He justifies us before God. He reconciles us with God to a new relationship. He adopts us as his children and he gives us eternal life. And that all happens because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. The resurrection is the promise that we too will live with him forever. Before Jesus raised Lazarus, he questioned Lazarus' sister Martha in John eleven twenty five and 26. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he challenged her with a question Do you believe this? He's seeking to apply doctrinal truth to Martha's own heart. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Is your hope in Christ? Is your hope in the fact that he died for your sins and raised you up and that he was raised from the dead to give you the promise and the hope of the resurrection where we will live and reign with him forever and ever and ever? That's the truth. That's the parable of the story. As the people witness all this in verse 16, they were, they were so stricken with fear Fear as awe, fear as reverence, fear as astonishment, fear expressed in humility, and they began to glorify God. And they confess a great prophet has risen among us. Now, they were trying to understand this and didn't seem to have all of the categories that we have from the New Testament. They knew from the Old Testament, Elijah did this, Elisha did this Jesus does this and what Jesus does is better and greater than Elijah and Elisha therefore he must be a prophet but he must be the great prophet that was a good start for them but then they also acknowledge that Jesus had come from God they say that because of what Jesus has done here God has visited his people Jesus was God's agent As Zechariah points out in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. They're beginning to understand that God is doing something through Jesus, and it's pointing toward their redemption. We have the full knowledge, the full revelation of the New Testament to understand that Jesus is more than just a great prophet certainly he is that but he would reveal himself as Messiah as Lord as Son of God as Son of Man as Redeemer and it's through that understanding that we respond to him we respond in the full light of the revelation of his redemptive work so what is your response to Jesus As a Christian, do you stand in awe of what God has done for you? Is your hope in him and his resurrection, are you living this life that he has given to us by his authoritative word? I pray that our response would be like the mourners here in Nain, that we too would say with them that a great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, Has risen among us that we would live in the fear of God and in the truth of that confession. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these ancient words we often sing about. They're words of truth, and we read today they are also words of power. They are words of life, they are words of glory. They show you in the fullness of your exaltation and they also call us to respond properly Lord may we like the centurion bow our knee and humble ourselves and recognize our own unworthiness may we submit ourselves to you may we have faith in what you have done to entrust ourselves to you for your care and good keeping use as to however you might use to glorify yourself through us and may we too be like the mourners in Nain who witnessed that miracle of a, of a man being raised from the dead that we too would be seized by the fear of the Lord that we would not capitulate to the fear of man but that, that we would seek always to honor you in everything that we do that we would glorify you, that we would relish the gifts you give to us and to use them, Lord, as a, as a faithful trust, as an honored trust to live before men and women in these days. Help us to glorify you, Lord. Thank you again for your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.